Hey you, thanks for tuning into the Waiting List Podcast. I'm Long Long. I'm Daniel. And I'm Jacqueline. And we are three watch friends with a healthy obsession for watches. So sit back and relax with us while we chat with collectors, industry giants, and share some good vibes. Today we welcome a Lange collector that I met recently, and you guys know how much I appreciate Lange, so I had to get him onto the pod. It's a guy called Dave Geng, and it's a pleasure to have you on here with us, Dave. Good to have you. I mean, thank you. <laughs> Morning. Well, wow. having me. All of us. So yeah. Right. So this is a two-parter. Uh, before we get into the watches, Dave, I'd love to spend some time, um, you know, talking about you know your career and you know what got you here, and um, just so the audience gets to know you a little bit. Because as Long Long always says, if you can afford a watch collection, then you must have made a few right choices in life. Maybe. Yeah, I like it. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, uh, I've been buying, I, I was telling Daniel earlier, um, the other night, I, I've been buying watches at Walmart since I was like 16 years old. So, uh, you know, I, I, so I, I was born in China, um, mainland. So I moved um, to the U.S. when I was 14 to go to high school there. So high school, college, I worked for a couple of years, and then back to Asia. I lived in Hong Kong for almost a year before uh, moving back to mainland again. So that's when I, you know, start really uh, buying, you know, grown-up watches, uh, IWCs and Rolexes and, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. So... All right. So where, where in like mainland China are you originally from? I was born in Tianjin. So way up okay, north. North. Yeah. Yeah. That's where my parents went to college. So that's where they met and that's where they had me. So um, I spent probably, I went to kindergarten there and then I moved down to Guangdong with my mother um, after she came back from France. Um. So I grew up, I spent, the, you know, the, the, the majority of my childhood in Guangdong. That's why I grew up speaking Cantonese. So that's like my, almost uh, my mother tongue, Cantonese. Yeah. So did you like, because I know a bit more about you than everybody else. Like right. your your parents, they're, they're like a college professors or something, right? Yeah, they were. They were. So, um, so they went to... So shortly after they had made, they went to France together to study for their PhDs. Um, and my mother came back to China after they finished their programs. And my dad moved to over to the U.S. So uh, I lived with my mother um, all the way up until I was 14 and then to the U.S. with my dad's family. They both got remarried uh, you know, at some point. So, uh, yeah, that's my life in a nutshell, basically. So at that kind of point in China, um, you were born in, I believe, 87. Yeah, 87. Yeah, 87. So, you know, to, to leave that country at that kind of point, yeah. Do you need to have like kind of some kind of background, i.e. do you need to be affluent or do you need to be politically connected or what? how was it back then? Yeah, it wasn't a common thing, right, to leave, like to be able to leave. No, it wasn't. I think my dad was telling me at the time, they were, you know, uh, the entire country, the entire nation was sending about 200 to 300 students overseas. So you have to be 
right? Like you said, either affluent, extremely wealthy, basically, or uh, your institution will send you on their behalf. So, you know, if you were a college professor, you was you'll be sent by your university uh, over abroad uh, for a couple of years, and you know you're supposed to come back to China and teach some more because you know all the expenses were paid for, all your tickets and that kind of stuff. So, I didn't know. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, but uh, my dad was like, nobody came back. <laughs> they all stayed in Germany. West Germany at the time. Well, I mean, sorry, East Germany at the time. Yeah. Uh, France, or the, for the most part, the U.S. The U.S. was the eventually. I mean, if you had studied in Europe uh, after you've gotten your degree, you will, you know, you, that's yeah, you probably end up going to the U.S. anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. So, in terms of like uh, the Chinese institutions, like the the aim was for them, like we'll let you go out. That's right. You have to come back. So that was what they wanted. I guess what they wanted was like a higher level of education or like, what what, what, is that what they wanted? That was when China started to open up. Um, My parents had left in early 89, I think right before, you know, Tiananmen Square and all that stuff. So after that, things got a little bit uh, sensitive. So they stopped doing that for a while. Um, so they got pretty lucky there. Uh, so, so they got to do that. Yeah. So, so yeah, they wanted to, you know, you know, I guess further advance their higher education at the time. So nobody, um, nobody was going to, cause nobody had any graduate, like China didn't have a real, you know, graduate programs at the time at, you know, at its higher uh, education institutions. So they wanted guys, you know, people, professors college teachers to go abroad and see what a real, you know, PhD degree degree looks like and then come back and establish their own programs and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, Everything's taught in English, right? Or, I mean, it's taught in Mandarin. So, I mean, how did your parents, one, learn English? And then two, when did China actually introduce post-grad and graduate school and stuff so my parents did what they did was they had this they had a um, they had to go to a um, like a prep like a crash course for so if you go to berlin you oh. you you have german for mm-hmm. like six months mm-hmm. everything was right so they did that for french mm-hmm. because they were uh france mm-hmm. or english you know the mm-hmm. uk or um yeah, so everybody did that for I don't know, six to twelve months, I guess. Mm. Uh, Japanese, you know, in that case, some in some sometimes uh, Japan was pretty popular at the time. Mm. Uh, so in China, you know, after the Cultural Revolution, that was seventy six to eighty six. So all the colleges or universities uh, didn't open up until China didn't have any higher education for like 10 years because of the cultural revolution. So 80, 1976 mm. was the first, sorry, 66 to 76. That was the cultural revolution. So China didn't have uh, for 10 years until 1976. So mm. they really are uh, really establishing real postgraduate programs until I want to say the late 80s. Whoa, so that's crazy. yeah 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 
Right. So yeah. how much so you did you spend some of your childhood in France then? I didn't because uh my you know my dad didn't want to stay in France either because like I said, because uh, at the time I don't think the Europe was um I mean, as an immigrant, I think it will be hard for them to survive in yeah. in France, Europe in general. Yeah. So, uh, so my dad, after he finished his PhD uh, program, he basically, yeah, he just jumped in the plane and uh, he did another. He did a postdoc for another two years in Dallas, in Texas, uh, and yeah, he's he's been living in the U.S. ever since. That was nineteen ninety three, nineteen ninety two. I wanna say, yeah. So, where, where, like, where were where were you when they were doing their like education, post grad education in France? Then, yeah, used to be China, or I was living with my grandparents at the time, but I was too young to remember. So, right, but I've been changing with my grandparents. Yeah, which my grandparents are also university professors. So, uh, I came. <laughs> wow. Right. Yeah. Your your family is like so well, like educated and I, yeah. I can't imagine what the dinner like table conversations are like <laughs> oh yeah oh it'd be fun yeah uh you guys got some next level genes <laughs> because like getting <laughs> yeah. to university back then you literally had to be the like the top in your whole province right oh yeah, yeah that's my, my dad is always shitting on me it's like dude when i was your age i was able to recite yeah. the fire yeah. people periodic table and all that i'm like dude like what well, the... it's useless yeah. man <laughs> yeah. so, did you say dude like that's the internet now <laughs> that's i'm like yeah you can just like find that on my on your phone yeah he, my dad's a chemist so he's yeah. very proud of okay so right yeah. so um so <clears throat> dave like you spent most of your time in dongguan right yeah and then you went to the U.S. to to study. Yeah, how was that transition for you going to the U.S.? Um, I was, you know, when we had um, so when I was going to school here, I started learning English probably when I was starting in we maybe it was the third or fourth grade. You know, the local schools started to teach English, like officially. Right, so we'll, you know, for every uh, like two blocks of the day, we'll have English. But the, but it was uh, was pretty natural transition for me because uh, for some reason, you know, maybe because I was able to pick up Cantonese so naturally too. I mean, I would, I just had a knack for languages, really. Like for some people, it was really it was really difficult time because I know I know people who were like later on. After I started going to college, and I've I've met people, I met people like me who we call them one point five generation immigrants, mm -hmm. right? So they, they moved to the U.S. in their adolescence. Mm -hmm. So right, but so if you if you move abroad when you were like twelve or thirteen or fourteen, uh, like when you're early teens, that's that's when we call them the one point five generation. So. For, yeah, for some people, it was really, um, they really suffered. You know, you just kind of immersion. I mean, the immersion, the whole immersion thing. So when you just, you know, drop ship somebody out of the plane, put mm -hmm. them in a 
you know, country that spoke a completely different language that, you know, somebody really, some people really suffer. You know, it took them years and years to, but for me, it was, uh, you know, I had, you know, I was pretty fortunate that I had, uh, I had, I had the opportunity to go to a really decent school and we had, you know, ESL classes that were, I didn't really need them, but uh, yeah, ESL, you know, English is a second language, that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, we writing, no, it was, uh, it was just, it was quick. It was a fast transition. Mm. Right. And, you know, at this time of your life, yeah, your parents were separated. And how, in this kind of case, who has the impact of your career choice in terms of like you, what you what you study? Because you know Chinese families, they're they're really on it. I'm sure your family, you know, with all this history of education, they they really want to like make sure they get this right. But with your parents separated, did your dad have a say, or did your mom have a say, or did your grandparents have a say? Like, or they all have a say? Like, yeah, my my mom is uh, pretty relaxed about it. She's always, you know, she's the type of person. She's like just you know follow your dream that kind of. Um, okay, but even my even my dad is, you know, it's it, my dad would push my brother really hard, like my half brother. So I grew up with my half brother. So same dad, different mom. Mm. Uh, but I would say I've always been a pretty social person from you know from a pretty young age. So I was always out out and about. I was never in the house. I was either working a part-time job since I was 16 or, you know, going on, uh, I don't know, uh, land parties. You, you know what a land party is? Yeah. I used to play video games as well. Right. That's yeah, right. That's it's fun. <laughs> yeah. We, that, well, they don't have that anymore because yeah. everything is so good nowadays. So yeah. yeah, but back in the day we had a lot of land parties. So um, my dad knew I wasn't going to be like a, scientist or a doctor mm -hmm. or or like a dentist or something like that so mm -hmm. but uh okay. yeah but right, i've always so... had programming so that's like you know what, what did you actually uh major in you're electrical engineering double e yeah okay and uh what did you end up using that for like what did you go into after that yeah, so that's I had a um, um, so electrical engineering at the time was mostly um, programming. So, so for the for about the first, so you you enroll in these. So you the first year was basically all math classes, right? So linear algebra, differential equation, all that stuff, and then the second year will be something like um, all the logic classes mm. so foundations of the digital world and then you start learning about you know programming you know java and whatnot so i've always had a, i've always had a um you know interest in programming so that's why i wanted to you know i didn't really i i, I don't think people are always like oh you need professional training um i mean if you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer obviously you're going to have to go to you know med school and law school and all that but programming you can't you can kind of learn that on your own really mm. it's like right it's like being a 
professional athlete almost. Like nobody really needs to go to school for that, right? But <laughs> but I just thought it it'd be cool to be called. I just wanted to be one of those guys, like to be an engineer. Mm. Like I have a. I won't have real credentials, like so people will be like, but I I guess in the end it doesn't really matter. So because I didn't end up being an engineer anyway. So right. So <clears throat> so what did you end up doing? So my first job was with Roland Berger, the consulting company. Um they had um they had a so Roland Berger is known in the industry for automotive consulting. So I was also interested in cars a lot. So uh, that's what, uh, that's the job offer I ended up taking uh, was with, you know, automotive consultant. So I did that for a couple of years. Um, yeah. All right. And like, what did you, how long did you stay in that for? And then what did you move on to? So I did that for a little less than two years, uh, more or less. Yeah. Give or take two years. And then I joined a, uh, small startup company um we produced polyurethane polymer materials uh mostly polyurethane foam um and we will supply all the sporting goods company uh at the time asics was our biggest customer believe it or not the japanese were really keen on taking on new materials so asics was our biggest customer i'm still a big loyal asics fan because that's what got us started um and then we started to get new customers like nike adidas converse well converse nike same same company timberland new balance etc etc yeah so i did that for the with the chemical company that was my last real job for 10 years yeah that was my last 95 job yeah okay so the chemical company though that was when you um that was a startup right um that was a yeah, I would say, yeah, because at the time I was like the seventh employee. So, yeah, yeah, that was we had an office that had, you know, that was maybe 200 square feet, uh, you know, five computers, that kind of thing. So, yeah, start off. Sure. Like you, you were in, in, originally consulting for the automotive industry and then you yeah. jumped into like uh, sneakers or a, yeah. a chemical company. Did you even know it was going to be sneaker related or? I had no idea. So how I came up, you know, how I came about um, in, you know, to this industry was, uh, so I was one day having, you know, we were having lunch with a uh, old buddy from college. So he's maybe two years younger, you know, uh, it was a little fun reunion for me to kind of go back to where, because he was still in school. He was like a senior at school at the time so we, we got together and he said hey my brother and my dad are starting this really cool company um that, and they needed someone i mean they they needed someone who has sort of a engineering background because they were doing chemicals uh, but i said oh, well, like, dude i'm not a chemical engineer uh, but, said, but um but you speak chinese right because so, people are so for some reason, the U.S., like, people were amazed when they found out that I speak Chinese. Mm. Um, I don't know. It's, I'm like, dude, yeah. So um, that's how I got to know uh, the brothers. Mm. So they were, 
So it was a, it was a really interesting setup. So the the older son, uh, they would he they started a company together with his dad. So they were both co-founders, the father and son. Uh, but I, so you know, long story short, I ended up meeting his brother, which is the older older son of the uh, the, the family, and I had dinner with the brother uh, and the dad, and we just really kicked it off. It was like. Um, we were just, you know, have you know, it was like a seven-hour-long dinner conversation. Uh, it was, you know, grappa, limoncello. Uh, so it's like, hey, you come, you should come join us. We're starting this, you know, uh, really cool company. We're gonna fucking take over the world. You know, that's uh, that's how it got started. That yeah, was that, too- that that guy, the the father, actually had um, experience in the field already, right? That's correct. Right, right. The father, Glenn, he's uh he's he's a uh he's always been a industry yeah, he's an industry veteran for sure. He's been doing rubbers and compounds uh, for almost thirty years. So uh yeah. All right, and then you know, <clears throat> you made this material, Polly, and what what exactly where exactly is it used in the sneaker? Um, for us, um in the beginning it was mostly the insole. So if you take a pair of your Nike Free or uh, Asics, the Nimbus or the Kayano, the yeah, higher... I had a Kayano, the gel yeah, Kayano. Yeah. I had that, yeah. yeah. If you take the insole out, which is the removable part, so the, the insole, the sock liner, or we call it sometimes, um, you would see a navy blue or a baby blue material that's very spongy and foamy. That's us. That's what we make. So hang on, when you take the sock out, you're talking yeah. about the sock or you're talking about what you see in the shoe? The, we call it the sock liner or the insole. So right. the whole part, you know, shaped like your foot. Yeah. So there's usually a, a layer of fabric or leather on top of that. So the under, the, so the sponge underneath, that spongy part, that's what we make. So yeah. I guess like, the way sneakers are going because honestly there's like a drop every day almost it almost feels like probably yep. even a few drops every day that's and right in terms of materials it must be like so cutthroat because yeah. you guys as a chemical company must have to just keep probably just keep inventing new materials all the time and i'm not sure that's- like in terms of sneakers right they're already like super comfortable most of the majority of them yeah like how much can you like in- increase on the comfort or is it more about like marketing a material to be even better when really, really the improvements are incremental? Right. No, that's a great question. Well, I mean, you'd be surprised how many innovations and inventions go into the sneakers. So remember back in the day, like in the eighties, like the NBA player players would play basketball in Converse shoes. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. So imagine that. So you know, like we all have converses, right? So you can't play ball in a pair of converse. But but that's what they did because they didn't have they didn't know any better because they didn't have all these, you know, um, like Adidas Boost is would be a great example. That came in and kind of, that came about in what 2010, about 10 years ago. And just when people thought, oh, I mean, like you said, sneakers were already so comfortable, like why bother? Okay, uh, but I mean, there's so many new innovations, like um, like the Gore-Tex material, for instance. 
um, is breathable yet water resistant. Mm-hmm. I mean, that stuff is 20, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's either a canvas or like canvas would be uh, what they use on the upper of a converse shoe, right? So it's it's super strong, very durable, but a little raggedy, so not very comfortable. Or leather. Uh, so, you know, nobody is making sneakers. I mean, unless you're making like Jordans, like the, uh, like if you go on the Nike sneakers app, like all the limited editions and all that stuff, all the co-branding, like uh, Jordan times Dior, that stuff is all made of leather, but everything else is um, fly knit. So um, all your sneakers have a knitted upper. So it's knitted like a sock almost. So, you know, you know when you, so if you go buy a pair of Nike, Flying it is the trademark for Nike, yeah. right? So the upper, yeah. So it's like a mesh upper. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Most the two way, you know, four way stretch. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's the that's also an innovation that came along about ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, that took over the entire sneakers world, the flying it upper thing. Mm-hmm. Um. So or a sneakers upper will have 15, 20 different components, and it's all glued together. Mm-hmm. So it was very labor intensive. Um, but now everything's just knitted. It's one piece. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, the man hours just went from, you know, is a tenth of what it used to be. Mm-hmm. So what there's... What fo- say, like, um, from your point of view, from materials point of view, like, was the biggest innovation in, like, sneakers? Would you say it's Flyknit or would you say it's a different material? Yeah, um, I think there are different perspectives. So the flyknit really helped from the manufacturer's side. So because we had, they could, you know, the, the shoe factories were uh, really psyched about, you know, the uh, when they ushered in the flyknit age because they were able to use, they were able to automate. That was the upper was probably um. the part of the shoe so they were able to automate a lot of that uh, but from a consumer's point uh, if you're a user I think the boost was definitely up there um, in terms of you know functionally the boost I mean it's, it wasn't marketing gimmick right you could yeah. feel that in the pair of boost how bouncy that shit is right yeah yeah and it was visible too like we talked about the other day you know they had this, you know, look to it, very unique look. Like you take popcorns and you know smash them all together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the boost up there. Yeah, yeah. You said it was a uh, at the time when we spoke about it. It was a gamble, right, by Adidas. It, it it was a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because BASF, the German company who made the boost, um, I'm sure their sales team had taken that stuff too. And presented it to every brand there is Nike, Adidas, Asics. And they were Adidas was the only one. I think it probably has something to do with they're both German at the, at the time. So they were like, hey, we should uh, help a brother out and try out this new German technology, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, Adidas, Adidas's market cap, I think, tripled in about three years' time after they introduced Boost. If you look at how their stock went, uh, compared to Nike, everything kind of slowed down after I think seventeen or sixteen. But yeah, mm-hmm. that really 
put Adidas into on you know, um, in a different uh, category. Yeah. So the company you worked for is that obviously it started off as a just I don't know like a seven man operation, but is yeah. it now like a, you know a kind of leader in the in the space or are there you know yeah where is it? Yeah. Um, so I think at the time. Uh, we were pretty lucky to land our major after we landed the Nike free program. Uh, that was right around when I joined in 2010 um, or 11. And we, we sort of experienced a, a really rapid growth area uh, in the time. So we probably, we would double our sales, you know, in revenue almost every year. So we, we did $10 million. Next year, we did 20 And then it was $40. Uh, we had that kind of, we had crazy growth for like the first three to five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I say at the, if you look at the uh, insole material, which used to be dominated by EVA. Uh, EVA is the stuff that you, fa- you will find. Um, it's a common household. I mean, you find EVA everywhere. Um, it's um, you the outsole like the, the outsole part the white part mm, of most yeah. sneakers they're still made uh, with EVA mm. um, so EVA is used in everything so insoles missiles outsoles so we kind of came in and replaced a lot of that uh, EVA material on the market and so for the past 10 years if you look at if you take any sneakers um, at the pr- premium price range. By premium, I mean probably 75 US dollars and up. You will find either our material or, I mean, either made by us or a similar product. You probably you are saying PU foam. Yeah. Um, in terms of all these brands, Asics, Adidas, Nike, who else is there? Um, I guess now Under Armour. Under Armour, yeah. Yeah, like which one's actually high quality and low quality? Um, yeah, I, people ask them, ask me a lot about yeah. who ha, who actually makes, I think they're fairly close when at the price range. So if you go out and shop for a $50 sneaker, the yeah. differences are because they're made more or less at the same factory. Oh, okay. So OEM factory yeah. for footwear on yeah. Pao Chan, Taiwanese group. Yeah. So Pao like Boxcom of the footwear oh, world okay right so pao chan makes sneakers for nike adidas asics solomon timberland new balance mm. and everybody mm. i mean all the, they all have different qc standards and all that stuff but at the end of the day it's it's uh it, they're pretty close i like to think yeah. i still like to think that asics makes the best sneakers yeah so at, asics i feel the same like highest quality but the ugliest so it's like <laughs> trade off. They have never made a single thing that's decent looking, not even their clothes. And right. Adidas is like super nice from far away, but the moment you yeah. touch it, it's gonna break. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So E6 had um, their headquarters is in Kobe outside mm-hmm. Osaka. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Asics has been hiring a lot of young designers and industrial designers and artists. So, but they put most that stuff. They put most of that talent in the Oniska Tiger division. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Don't need a tiger. Um, yeah, they're not I'm, comfortable though. <laughs> yeah, because they're that, all that like, sole is so thin. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's the point. Yeah, right. It's not comfortable. I never want to wear them. Like I've got, yeah. I used to have a pair. I was like, yeah, yeah these look good because. What's that name? Uma Thurman. Yeah, she wore it in Kill Bill. I thought, oh, yeah, it's great. Yeah. At the time, I wasn't as thin as Uma Thurman. That's why I didn't look great in them. But, like, honestly, those are the They look great if you're Bruce Lee or Uma Thurman, right? And that's because they're thin. They're slim, right? right? So but they, when I they, wore them, they didn't look yeah, that great. They, and they weren't comfortable. So I stopped wearing them. They're not meant for performance. They're, they're it's a fashion yeah, thing. Yeah, it's just fashion. Yeah. Mm. But no, yeah. It, they need to kind of step step up their game in terms of designs. So, yeah. yeah. I, I do know what, because um, Long Long, yeah, she runs a lot. Yeah, so, she, yeah, she's very, like, probably one of these, well, very understanding of, like, um, what's actually good to run in. Yeah, mm-hmm. what is actually your sneaker of choice, actually, right now, Long? It's still Nike. Like, I've tried everything. And there's even a brand called APL. That, APL. Um, yeah, so they work really hard just to make it really light. But I also think it depends on one running style, your foot shape and everything. And yeah. uh, I mean, ASICS has always been known to like cater to wider Asian feet as well. Like that's this option for them. Correct. It's, it's so ugly that I'm just like, I can't, I can't take it. It's just really yeah. ugly. Yeah. 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 I mean, I guess you could try... Like if you do you do road running or yeah, a little bit of, yeah yeah road running yeah I mean I guess New Balance makes some nice options uh, yeah, like. ironically too though yeah but yeah you know, the reason yeah. why if okay so I'm I'm half Taiwanese and New Balance is like a, everybody in Taiwan every uncle has a New Balance on the street so I'm like I'm avoiding this New Balance but yeah well, where I, like I grew up in Boston, right? So I've I've always had this affinity for New Balances because you know all the middle aged white men they all have all these <laughs> huge bikers that I don't know where they got. Like, yeah, but and you know Balance has a different um, division too. They 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 make some serious running shoes as well. So yeah, yeah. I I'm um I'm still using when I go to the gym, right? I'm still using um the adidas uh ultra boost ones right so i got yeah like and the sole they used the i think the continental uh tire rubber that's right right. yeah and i've I've actually worn it down so it's actually come to the boost but i i love those shoes they're so comfortable right they just perform exactly how i want and i actually got a newer pair right i didn't like it i didn't like it how it felt right i still prefer the older pair so that's why I keep wearing the older pair. So, but oh. now I'm like, now now I'm really like putting holes in them. Yeah, I don't want to look like a homeless when I go to the gym. Yeah, like I can't afford a pair of sneakers. <laughs> so I'm looking What's... for a new pair. And I'm like, and I'm a bit like long, long as well. I do care about how I look in this pair of sneakers. Okay. No, but you, you, you think about that. But like, I'm in the gym potentially like five times a week for an hour, right? They're like a shoe, my go-to shoe that I will wear a lot. I want to look and I have a different attire in terms of gym, right? Like I have quite a, you know, different gym clothes. They need to fit, right? I I need to feel good about myself when I go to the gym to perform, right? If I think I look shit, I just don't feel that great. Yeah. (laughs) Straight away. Because there's loads of mirrors in the gym as well. Yeah. Yeah. So right now on YouTube, it fed me this, um, 
and then you probably guys know Nike. Is it Pegasus? Yeah, Pegasus. Yeah, yeah. thirty nine well. sucks. Yeah. Are they suck? Do they suck? Just, like I said, it just depends. Like you should just buy everything and just try it yourself. Because right. there's no way, depending on how you run and what you do. Like if you're gonna weight lift, you wouldn't even need the angle. Like you know, because you're not running. Yeah, I don't really weight lift. It's more like I do more like CrossFit stuff. They make make weightlifting shoes. Yeah, they make I even have the CrossFit shoes even. <laughs> oh Reebok. Yeah, kind of and dominant. they even yeah, and Nike at one point made those hit shoes where there's like bumps like this, so you can like grip onto the floor. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Footwear is very interesting. So they make you know, um, there's a brand called Vivo V I V O. So they V V O. So they make weightlifting shoes. It's a UK company. Mm. So, right. so it's designed not to move, right? So you kind of, you just kind of sit, you know, um, put your foot yeah. down and. Um, I forgot to ask you actually. When you're in this company, what were you actually doing? What was your role in the company? Right. So I had to for the for, for I think for about this the first six months or so I had to travel all over, um, learn about manufacturing. Not necessarily for footwear, but um, but just about manufacturing in general. So coming from the automotive world, I've you know I I knew a little bit about manufacturing, but not at the same scale right so um i was in china vietnam i went to india for a couple of times because, just to get to know the supply chain a little bit right so from fabric companies to tanneries tanneries is where they make the leather where they take the raw hide into and make them into real leather um to chemical come to you know chemical companies to molding facilities and then to assembly lines where they put the actual shoe together. So companies like Pao Chan. Mm -hmm. um, I was in Vietnam a lot because that's, you know, where things were happening. You know, I, I started at around the time where production was starting to shift outside of mainland China. So if you take Nike, Nike Inc. as an example, um, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, Nike was probably manufacturing 75, 70% of their shoes out of China. Mm. So at OEM factories all over China, Guangdong, Fujian, Guangxi, uh, Sichuan, all over. But now Nike is probably doing that 65%, 70% of their shoes in Vietnam. So that all happened, you know, not overnight, but over a course of, 10 years about so i was in vietnam a lot you know visiting suppliers and i had to learn about the supply chain right because mm -hmm. our customers would be the shoe factories because they were the ones who were paying for the material mm -hmm. not the brands um, right. right so so yeah i was you know on the road you know drinking going to karaoke with the taiwanese guys like five days a week yeah. <laughs> so you're a good singer now, Dave. Yeah. Well, now I, I, I am. Yeah. I had professional training. So. What's your What's your go-to song? Oh, there's too many. I that's that I can't. That's 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 impossible to answer, man. That's yeah. All right, you're one of those then. Yeah. <laughs> Every song is your song. Okay, right. You should my bash, man. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like um, going to karaoke is such—it's like a very big Taiwanese thing. This is something I've never understood. 
because even yeah, when it's a big I, Taiwanese thing, is it? I don't know. It is, which, it is right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. I guess people. I mean, you if you were just having dinner, everything's just kind of formal and yeah, you know, nobody let their guard down, and there was all you know yeah. business look. But then when you start drinking and you know dancing a little bit, yeah. start to relax. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, um, Dave, we we had this conversation, right? And there's some shoes, yeah, we look at in the market today, and we think, how the fuck did that ever become a success? Right. And you yeah. have a very interesting story, don't you? Yeah, I have a very interesting story. So, okay. so you know, I, this is secondhand information from my boss, so Glenn. Um, so, twenty years ago, uh, I want to say oh three or oh two. So he had a, he had a, um, so he was in the rubber industry. So he, they were, they were, they were making Vibram outsoles in the United States. They were doing manufacturing in the U.S. at the time. So it was, it was very expensive. And, um, you know, all the production was moving out of, out of the U.S. to either like Mexico or Dominican Republic and those kind of places. So he was looking for a new business opportunity at the time. So um, his buddy set up a meeting with this new guy. His name was like Don or Lyndon. I think it was Lyndon. His name was like, like Lyndon Johnson, like Lyndon. So it's like, dude, Glenn, I want to meet, you know, a good friend of mine, Lyndon. Dude, that guy was like 60 at the time, Lyndon. So he started this new footwear company that's going to fucking take over the world by the whirlwind. Because, you know, um, so Lyndon came over to his house. He had like a gym bag with like 20 pairs of shoes in it. Um, and you know, they were, so they were having barbecue or something in the backyard and, uh, he showed it to Glenn. He's like, Glenn, I want you to invest in my footwear company. Look at what I brought. So he took out his new, his samples he had made in Mao in Taiwan. Mm. So, cause they were compressed EVA. So they're, you know. At the time, the U.S. didn't have really manufacturing capabilities to do that because nobody was doing manufacturing anything in the U.S. anymore. Mm. So he had to fly on, get them made, bring them back to the U.S. Mm. Um, so he took uh, these shoes out of his gym bag. It was the ugliest shoe Glenn's ever seen. It was Crocs. <laughs> it's like, dude, Lynn like duke i'm like he, he, he no that's not dude that that's not gonna work like you're gonna <laughs> yeah that's the ugliest i've ever i mean the, no i'm not gonna invest in sorry but you know come back to me later so um i think Lyndon ended up going to a footwear show like a trade fair after that with his samples and he somehow miraculously he was able to pulled it off he has sold all his salesmen salesman samples um at the time you could still just buy shoes from you know the trade fairs and all that stuff but um and yeah the rest is history i mean it was crocs but um were crocs marketed as like just casual shoes or were they like for a kitchen or something yeah crocs the design was it originated from a boating shoe. Oh, okay. Right. A boating shoe. Yeah, right. 
So I if you a boating shoe that looks like that, <laughs> right? But if you look at the design, like it has like a little handle, yeah, strap, yeah, yeah. So if you're strolling around and like if you own a yacht or something, well, it doesn't have to be a yacht. It could be a fishing boat or a tugboat. Yeah, like on your deck, because that's water. It's water everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Be something that can, you know, the water gets dissipated very quickly. You need that kind of. So that's what it was originally. Okay. So, but then not everybody owned the boat, right? So, yeah, uh, it became a gardening shoe in the U.S. <laughs> Hose in your garden, like yeah. so. That's they were marketing it as a gardening shoe. Uh, but then, I mean, that's one of the biggest mysteries in the footwear industry is like how Crocs came about, and it really did take over the world. Like for like a what ten year period, like everybody had a pair mm. of Crocs. Mm. Like, right? Have you guys ever bought a pair of Crocs? <laughs> I'm just like, not there yet. I mean, yeah, I don't have a boat and I don't have a big garden. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> by the time crocs reached asia i was in yeah. singapore and it was the shoe for like public toilet cleaners i'm not joking and it was either that or kitchenware like i mean kitchen staff right okay yeah yeah like you chef or something yeah sure yeah, yeah I, I mean i that. still think it looks it makes sense for kitchen people to wear it right yeah right well i, I used to wear it in the surgery oh right yeah, yeah. yeah because like you, when you get into surgery, I changed into scrubs, right? And then everybody would be one of the things that Crocs was, and still is, I guess, is that they're actually quite comfortable. Yeah. You know, slip on and slip off, like a, like a, almost like a slipper. But you don't want, you can't wear a slipper because it's not like rubber. You know what I mean? Like it's not hygienic, right? Uh... So you have to wear something like that but then i always thought it was a bit dumb like because it's got holes in it so if i dropped like a scalpel or anything you know it's got a hole in it you know like it's, it could potentially injure me wait why yeah, are you so... wearing socks no i was wearing socks oh okay 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 yeah okay. it's still got hot but the scalpels could still hit a sock and go through it man they're really sharp so yeah. there's lots of sharp instruments so i was like you know is this the most sensible thing but then everybody else was wearing them so i was like and it's kind of weird, yeah. The the Crocs actually go well with scrubs. Huh. Scrubs is scrubs is the outfit. If anybody doesn't know, scrubs is like the the outfit you see doctors wearing in the hospital, right? Like not the lab coat. The they look like pajamas, actually. Yeah. Um. So I, I yeah I had a pair for that. Yes, it's just amazing how you know when. It, you know, when you look at the design of a Crocs, it's a it's a one piece construction, so it was extremely easy. Yeah. And it was yeah. cheap. So I mean the margins on those shoes must be insanely high. It's one of the if not the most profitable shoe in human history. If you look at how sneakers are made or like yeah uh, all your dress shoes, like that's it doesn't even compare. It's not even in the same yeah. off the charts. So yeah, that guy made a fortune for sure. All right, I I gotta ask as well, like um, replica shoes. Yeah, mm -hmm. you probably know exactly how they're made and you know where they're made. 
are they pretty much the same thing? Um, do you have a specific or a particular? Let's say like uh, AJ1s. Yeah. yeah. Or even like you mentioned uh, AJ1, you know, crossover with Dior, something like that. Like that, yeah. Yeah. So what do you want to know again? Like how they were... No, not how they were. It's like, how does the quality match up with the real things? Are they even coming out from the same factories? Uh, no, they come from... The, yeah, good. Yeah, they, they come off of different production lines. So Nike has a... Um, supposedly all the Air Jordans have little air pockets in them, like the, you know, shock absorption, little air pockets in them. So Nike makes right. all, 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 all the air pockets in the US. They had they have a little factory operation next to the headquarters in Beaverton, Oregon, um, called IHM, in-house manufacturing. So they make all these air pockets domestically um, for some reason, um, and then they'll ship them to... So Jordan's are... Jordan is basically a separate company now. Not a separate company, but a, a whole different division than the rest of Nike. So if you look at um, their financial reports... So they will list all their subsidiaries of Nike Inc. And Jordan is listed separately when it comes to sales and margins and all that. So there's Nike, there's Converse, there's, it used to be Kohan, right? Kohan was used to, they were owned by Nike for a while. And then there's Jordan. And then they own Umbro for a little bit, the software company. Um, so yeah, yeah, all the Jordan shoes are made in the, at the different uh, plants, factory. Um, okay. So their qualities were, I like to think, a little better than the mass produced. Uh, but they were also more expensive. So you pay what you get, what you pay for. So, yeah. But as a as a material company where you're selling this material, right? Yeah. Like you could potentially, all you care is about selling material. So you could sell your uh, polyurethane to these factories that make replicas because they, their volume must be right up there as well, right? Yeah. So as long as it's, you're selling this material, if they make fake or real one, does it, does it, you know, like what were your contractual obligations for that? Yeah, so we had, you know, obviously we have NDAs and that kind of stuff. So we would not sell. Um, I mean, we will always work directly with brands and the developers and designers uh, with you know, for instance, we had worked with Easy for a little bit, the the you know, the, the Connie issues. Um, so they will have us sign all these NDAs, and because we will look at, we will get our hands on the blueprints, the new designs of the shoes that are coming out. You know, a year later, right? So um, we will, we will, at the time we had to set up a mini production line just for Easy because everything had to be concealed. So we put like tent covers all over our production line and nobody else would see what was being made. Uh, even though it was for the most part, the same material, like it was in a different color, maybe the foam it's because easy wanted to have a hundred percent secrecy. Um, so it's like working with Apple was the same thing. Um, they will always have assigned exclusivity agreements, things like that, that we would not supply the same material not even to the to the knockoffs, but to other brands. So they would have that material 
exclusively made for them. That's like with uh, Boost, then, isn't it? Because Boost is an added. It's like pretty much is it exclusive to Adidas? It is. It is. Yeah. 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 Right. Oh yeah, very similar to that. Like BASF had to, you know, Adidas bought, you know, the right to use Boost, not just the trademark, but the material too. So. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, that's been a really fascinating insight into the sneaker yep. industry from a person that actually knows what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when you now move off that because, well, actually, before we go off, that's where you made most of your wealth, right? In this 10 year period uh, yeah. with the sneaker factory to buy your watches that we're going to discuss in the next episode, right? Yeah. Because you were given share options in this company. Correct. Yeah. So do you feel kind of lucky? <laughs> Oh yeah, I was, you know, yeah, I, 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 I mean, if I had stayed with a, I don't know, like a nine to five consulting company or something like that, it probably, it probably wouldn't have happened or not as quickly, right? I mean, you will have a pretty cushy nine to five job, uh, but then, yeah. Okay, right. I want to move on to you obviously quit that company and nope. you then moved to Shanghai. That's uh, correct. What's yeah, what's was the reason behind that? So I had I started well, I started another footwear company in uh, right after COVID started, so early twenty twenty. Um so our supply chain is uh is mostly in the Pearl River Delta area in Jiaxing. Um, in outside of Shanghai, so I had to move here to take care of that because a little bit closer in Hangzhou mostly because all the e-commerce stuff takes place in Hangzhou in China. Yeah. So if you so if you have a Taobao shop or a Tmall shop, you're basically in Hangzhou all the time because everything's set up around Alibaba. Um, it's like Seattle, right? So if you work with Amazon or Microsoft, you kind of have to be in the vicinity uh, of that. So I didn't want to live in Hangzhou full time. I didn't know anybody there. So uh, I have family in Shanghai. I got I already have friends here. So Shanghai seems to be uh, the logical place to uh, for me to live in. Um, I was in Hangzhou for probably twice a week uh, in 2020. I would take the train to Hangzhou, came back, uh, and then I'll go again later in the week. So I was doing that a lot, back and forth between Hangzhou and Shanghai. Yeah. So how has this sneaker business been for you when you've actually had to set up your own brand and do everything yourself now? Like, oh, yeah. as opposed to just being part of a, co a, cog, in a co cog in a company. Right. Um, I think starting anything from scratch is such an excruciating process. Um, I mean, I think from zero to one is the hardest part. I mean, from one to a hundred is equally as challenging, but like when you had we had two like it was me and my partner was just two-man show so we didn't have any outside help really um luckily i was able to raise some capital from uh families and friends but then you know it was no it was hard it was it took us probably a year just to um start really selling you know set up the t-mall shop and all that um because since COVID, it was it didn't really make sense to have a brick and mortar store anymore. I mean, it didn't anyway for a startup, small startup like us. But 
since COVID, retail has been so bad in China. Um, I'm I'm sure it's you guys, you know, you guys know that. Uh, I mean, nobody's going to shopping malls. And uh, remember, things were just shut down for like the first three months in China. Were you guys there for well, that? I think I think uh, well, you're okay right now, right? So you've been out and about. It's pretty dead right now, right? It's pretty dead right now. Yeah, but that it, it, yeah, it felt like that. It felt like what. You know, right today in Shanghai, it yeah. felt like what was like in early 2020. Yeah, because yesterday I tried to order at McDonald's. Yeah. Right? I couldn't order one because the shop was closed. Like <laughs> right. McDonald's was closed. I mean, like, yeah. So I looked for the next nearest one. That was closed too. And I yeah. was like, oh, fuck this. Like, I'm not going to be able to get McDonald's. Like, right. yeah. yeah. All right. We're going to finish off this uh, episode now and just to ask you like what is going to be your next step after this um what's your plan for the future i really thought about that question yeah i mean i'm gonna probably stick to it a little bit longer try to build up the brand a little bit more um now it's almost on cruise control um so that takes up about um 30 40 percent of my time um but yeah i'll have to think about what's next um, I don't know, maybe a, maybe something watch related. I don't know. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you for being so open and sharing your career pathway and your personal journey with us. I'm sure the listeners will appreciate how honest and genuine you were on this episode. And I hope Absolutely. you enjoyed it too. Yeah. Thanks for your time, guys. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. We'll see you guys on the next one where we'll talk about Dave and his affection for Lange watches. Mm -hmm. All right. Later, see guys. Ya. As always, thank you for listening to the Waiting List podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to reach out to us at the Waiting List podcast on Instagram or via our private accounts. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.